0: Father God, we give thanks unto the Lord, we call upon his name, we thank you that he has made known his deeds among his people, we thank you that he does indeed know the end from the beginning and he has revealed that to us in the scripture so that we can know how it all ends and we do not need to be worried. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you still are on the throne no matter what is happening in the world. And may we just remember to redeem our time wisely, to live these last years totally for your glory, and to spread the word to others who are just going about in their little daily with their daily concerns and not even understanding the importance of the times that we are living in. I pray, Lord, that you would wake up America before it is too late. Lord, now I just ask that the words and the, and the um, thoughts of my heart would be pleasing to you. That we would, um, among all, th- most of all, that we would lift up the Lord Jesus Christ today in this lesson. That He would be magnified as He alone deserves to be. I know it's a difficult lesson. I help. I pray that you would help all of us to be able to focus on what you have to say through your holy scriptures, through prophecy, and. Um, Just help each and every one of us not to be concerned if we don't get it all, but to just see the overall big picture that you wrote this book. You are the author of this book, and that we can trust not only our daily lives to you, but our all of eternity to you. Now, um, we just pray your blessing on this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start out in John chapter 10. Do you remember that when we discussed the Lord's Good Shepherd sermon of John chapter 10, back in uh, lessons 95 and 96 in our books, we learned that the events of the first 21 verses of that chapter were separated chronologically in time from the events of the second half of the chapter, which start in verse 22. And those events, from from the jump, in verse twenty-one to the to where verse twenty-two starts, there's a time span of two and a half months. And we know this to be true from the scripture itself, because the events from John chapter seven all the way through John ten twenty-one took place at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And now in verse 22, you will notice it says, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. <clears throat> the Feast of Tabernacles occurs in the fall of the year. The Feast of Dedication occurs in the winter of the year. Actually, the Feast of Dedication, the Jews call Hanukkah because Hanukkah is the Hebrew word for dedication. And it always takes place at the same time you and I as Christians are celebrating Christmas. So we know that the first half of John chapter 10... Took place two and a half months earlier than the second half of John chapter 10. So after we finished the Good Shepherd Sermon, we, to find out what happened in those intervening two and a half months, we had moved over into the Gospel of Luke where we've been for quite a few weeks. And that's where we learned that after giving the Good Shepherd Sermon, the Lord Jesus sent out his 70 disciples and they went throughout the area of, um, you know, beyond the Jordan. That was what was called the Judean-Perean ministry of the seventy disciples. And then we looked at all that the Lord had to do and say, and he, you know, he talked about a lot of parables and everything in the meantime over in Luke. Now we're back in John ten. So it's two and a half months after the Good Shepherd Sermon, which means that there are only about two and a half or three months before he return, you know, comes back to Jerusalem for the Passover. This, by the way, what I'm going to read to you in today's text from John is the last time Jesus is in Jerusalem before he does come back on a day we'll celebrate next week, Palm Sunday, to officially present himself for the last time to Israel as her king and her Messiah. So this is going to be the last time he's in Jerusalem. And we find that he is there in order to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. Now, what I want to do in this morning's lesson is give you the history behind the events or of the events that led up to the Jewish celebration of known as the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. You know, I grew up in a Jewish community, very heavily Jewish. Uh, Skokie is a suburb, I didn't grow up in Skokie, Illinois, but it was very close to where I lived. And Skokie, Illinois is known as Little Israel. Because it's almost, I guess, about 100% Jewish. So I know about the celebration of Hanukkah. I'm familiar with going by, you know, Christmas time, seeing Christmas trees in some windows and menorahs in other windows because they were told to put the candlestick with the nine candles in their windows. And uh, a lot of Jews now even have what they call Hanukkah bushes where they they try to do the Christmas tree thing too because another name for Hanukkah is the Feast of Lights. So there's nothing wrong with them having lights as well. Anyway, I want to share with you, and I have found that since I've been in the South, which believe it or not, has been 33 years now, so I'm more of a Southerner than I am a Northerner. But in the South, many people, you know, I guess there aren't a lot of Jewish people down here. There's more coming this way. But a lot of Southerners are not as familiar with this celebration as as Northerners are. So I want to tell you about it. Now, you say, well, that's not really a very good reason, Catherine, for us to spend a whole lesson on the events that led up to Hanukkah. Well, if you don't think so, let me give you another reason. (laughs) Another reason I want to spend a whole lesson on this subject is because the Lord Jesus um, was present during the feast. He, um, He graced the feast of Hanukkah with his own presence. He went to Jerusalem in order to celebrate it. Even though it was at a risk to his own person, last time he had been in Jerusalem, the Jews wanted to do away with him. And if you'll see, if you'll look ahead, I'm going to read the text in a minute, twice in this second half of John chapter 10, they likewise tried to do away with him to pick up stones and stone him to death. So he was at the celebration of Hanukkah, so it must have been important. Another reason it must be important is because it is mentioned in the Scripture. Here in John 10, verse 22, it talks about the Feast of Dedication. And uh, it is also alluded to. The, the um, celebration or I should say the the events that led up to Hanukkah are alluded to very strongly by the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Now, the events themselves are not in Scripture because those events occurred. During the time of the intertestamental period, you remember there's four, there were 400 years of silence from heaven after Malachi was inspired to write the book of Malachi, which ends the Old Testament. Then the Jewish people didn't hear from God for 400 years. So it's called the intertestamental time of silence between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, which started the New Testament. The events that led up to Hanukkah occurred during those 400 years of silence. Now we do read about them in some uninspired books, which are called the books of Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Very, uh, we can learn a lot, we can glean a lot about history from those books, but we do not believe that they were God-inspired. Now, the Catholic Church does, and so they put them in their Bible, but for many solid reasons, we say they are not God-inspired, so they are not included in the Protestant Bibles. But we do learn a lot about history. Actually, the Feast of Hanukkah is more historically documented than any of the required Jewish feasts of Israel, such as Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Trumpets and all the seven that God recorded for Israel to celebrate. This one, Hanukkah, was not one of God's seven required celebrations. And yet there's so much significance in it. But it's more documented historically besides the books of of Maccabees than any other feast day that the Jews celebrate. And therefore, what I am going to be telling you this morning in our little history lesson is sure facts, things that absolutely happened. And Daniel Predicted all of these years ahead of time. Now, the events occurred in about 171 to 164 BC, before Christ, okay? But Daniel wrote the book of Daniel way back in the 600s and 500 BCs. So, about 370 years before these events happened, Daniel had predicted them because of, you know, divine inspiration. He surely didn't know about them, but it's it's fascinating. So we're gonna have a little history lesson this morning. How many of you have liked history in your, when you were in school? I never really particularly cared for history when I was in school, but ever since I've become a student of God's word, History has come alive for me because I know that it's his story. Everything in history really relates to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the God of history. All right, now what I want to do, because I might forget to do it otherwise is first of all read to you our text for today and talk about it really quickly and then I'm going to just you've got several weeks now to read your notes on John 10 verses 22 to 42 but most of our time this morning is going to be spoken about the events that led up to Hanukkah but let's first of all read the scripture it says and it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication and you might want to put next to that Hanukkah and it's spelled H-A-N-U-K-K-A-H And it was winter. And there's a double meaning in that. It was winter for Israel. It was winter for Jerusalem. Because after this little dialogue that Jesus has with the religious rulers, I told you, he leaves and he doesn't come back again until the time of the Passover when they do crucify him. So this is like their last shot. And, it's, and they reject him. And so it literally, you know spiritually speaking, it was winter for Israel. All right, verse 23, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now we're going to be talking about the desecration of the temple and the rededication of the temple. So it's very significant that at the time of the Feast of Hanukkah, he was in the temple. And he was on Solomon's porch. And I'll point that out later on in our history lesson. Then came the Jews, of course. That would mean primarily the Pharisees and the scribes. Then came the Jews round about him. That sounds to me like they made a circle around him, doesn't it? Make sure he wouldn't get away from them. Him, them, And said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us Plainly, Now that's probably not because they really want to know because he's told them over and over again who he is. All you have to do is go back and read what he had said to them the last time he was there in Jerusalem in John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9. Over and over again, he told them who he was. So this is probably a trap. This is the time of year that they are remembering back To a vile, wicked man who had come in, killed many of them, set up an abomination of desolation in the temple, and had declared himself to be God in the flesh. So it's a trap. We've been there before, Jesus. Go ahead, tell us you're God in the flesh. And pick up stones and kill you. That's what they're trying to do, is get him to say that so they can kill him. And Jesus answered them, I told you. And ye believe not, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So what he's saying there is, I've told you. He doesn't fall for their little trick and say, yes, I am the Christ, God in the flesh. Although (laughs) he just about says that in a few verses. But um, he says, I've already told you. I've told you. And also my works confirm to you who I am my works authenticate my words you know who I am but verse 26 but ye believe not because ye are not my sheep as I said unto you the problem wasn't that he hadn't been clear in claiming who he was the problem was their unbelief their unbelief because they were not of his sheep my sheep he says hear my voice and I know them and they follow me And now here is the um, most definitive declaration that ever came from the lips of Jesus regarding the eternal security of the believer. He says, and I give unto them eternal life. Give is presented in the present tense, which means... When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, present tense you have right then and there, eternal life. You don't have to wait till you die to get eternal life. We have eternal life right now because we have the life of God in us when we get saved. And God is eternal. His life is eternal. So we have eternal life. Only the body will die and even it will be resurrected. So he says, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands who are secure in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it gets even better. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So we have double duty, double decker security. Not only are we secure in Christ, but then God's Father is over that. And no man is able to pluck us out of that security. And that no man includes you yourself. There is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. If you truly save, nothing you can do. Or any other man. You know, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature... She'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Any other creature, principalities, powers, you know what? That includes Satan and his whole realm. There's nothing he can do, you can do, anybody can do. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And I'm sure glad for that. Because if there was something I could do to unsave myself, I'd be sure to find out what it was and do it. (laughs) Not that I'd want to, but... uh, We're not saved by works, so we're not unsaved by works, you know. It's all of grace. All right, now, whoo, here he goes. All right, he gave them more than they asked for here. Look at verse 30, and if you don't have that highlighted in your Bible, this is probably the... the, the biggest declaration of his deity that Jesus ever gave. Other than the times he said, you know, I am. That I'm not sure they always got that. But here, there's no doubt they get this. He says, I and my father are one. I and my father are one. Now, I'm not the father and the father's not me. But we're one in essence. We're one in nature. It's the word echad, which is plur- plurality, plurality. Unity in in plurality. It's like, you know, when a man shall leave his parents and cleave unto his wife, the two shall become one. I'm still Catherine and my husband is still Frank, but we're one. Which is sort of represented by our last name. and, And by our children, you know, that we become one. It's amazing how children look a little bit like one, a little bit like the other, usually. Sometimes it's not fair. But... My, my grandchildren all look like their daddies. I don't think that's very fair. <laughs> Either do their mothers. <laughs> anyway, oh, instead of listening to him, they'd asked. But they, they got what they really wanted because here they are in a circle around him. And what do they do? The Jews took up stones again to stone him. But it's amazing. Look how calm he is. There he's encircled by his enemies with stones in their hands. And all he does is answer them by saying, "...many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these, those works do ye stone me?" Aren't you glad he can give us that kind of peace that he had? Peace that passes all understanding in a situation like that. So he's saying, okay, for which good work do you stone, are you stoning me to death? You know, because I raised the dead or because I gave the, uh, cleansed the lepers or gave the, the lame able to walk or, or what about the blind man, you know? Gave him his sight even though he'd been born blind. For which good work are you stoning me? And it's interesting to me that they don't deny here that he did good works. They don't say, what good works? We've never seen you do a good work. All your works have been evil because they've been done in the power of Beelzebub. Or they don't say to him, What good work? You haven't done good works. A lot of your good works have been on the Sabbath day. Therefore, they have to be evil because you broke the Sabbath. Or they don't say, What good works? We haven't seen enough of those. Show us a sign. Instead, it's almost like they're admitting. They knew. They knew he'd done good works. No doubt about it. He'd done so many. They knew. So they just say, For a good work, we stone thee not. But for blasphemy and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Hang on to that question, that statement there. They are so uptight because of in their past, having had men come such as Antiochus Epiphanes and say that he is God manifest in the flesh and you have to worship him, that they're just over fanatical, even though they have all the proofs. I mean, Antiochus Epiphanes never, he wasn't from the jewish lineage like he should have been from abraham isaac jacob the tribe of judah david all that he was a gentile he never performed any miracles he hated the jewish people he killed the jewish people he set up zeus in the uh... the, the temple nothing that proved he was who he said he was but on the other hand jesus had everything to back him up and yet they're so productive now and i can almost understand after what they'd been through in history, which I'll tell you about in a minute, I promise I'll get there, um, that they they just go overboard in the wrong direction. So they said because of blasphemy. Blasphemy that's why we're going to stone you And then he gets into this little answer About um, is it not written in your law I said ye are gods If he called them gods Unto whom the word of God came And the scripture cannot be broken Say ye of him whom the father hath Sanctified and sent into the world that Thou blasphemest? because I said I am the God That is really confusing Isn't it Yeah, I hope she explains that too. I'd rather skip over that, but it's, it's pretty complicated. But the scripture does refer to, back in, back in the Old Testament days, they called, uh, the Jews referred to um, their judges and some of their rulers as gods with a little g. Because of the fact that they spoke for God, they knew they were sent from God and they spoke for God. And you can read one example is in Psalm 82, 6, I believe it is. So what he's saying, and also it says over in Exodus in several places, that Moses was like unto a god with a little g to Pharaoh because he spoke for God. So what his point is here is if in your scriptures, which cannot be broken, you even referred to men who spoke for God as God's, then surely I, who have been sent by God and am sanctified by God because I am God's son, certainly I have every right to say that I am the son of God because I'm far more than just a man like Moses or any of your judges or rulers. And that's about the best I can do for you to explain that. But that was, uh, and if you want to get into more study, you can look it up in the commentaries. (laughs) All right, then he says in verse 38, But if I do, though ye believe me not, not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So he told them about all he could possibly tell them, and they didn't believe, so they sought again to take him. But, and here's a miracle that really proved he was who he said he was. Can you imagine this? They're around him in a circle with stones in their hands, and he escapes from their midst. I don't, it never explains to us how he did that. I don't know how he did it. I'd like to see how he did it. I think he just walked past them with that look on his face that nobody dared to do anything about it because he had such authority and such a presence about him. But he just walked right out of their midst very calmly, and it was winter for Israel because he left Jerusalem. And where did he go? He went, it says, verse 40, and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized and there he abode. It's interesting that Jesus went back to where he had started his ministry. Remember when he, after he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he came down, he went to the place beyond Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing and he himself was baptized there and that's when the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended upon him. That's where he began began his ministry. Basically, now we see that this is where he is ending his ministry. Now, do you remember who has primed the pump in this area? Well, I just gave you one clue. John the Baptist had spent most of his ministry there in that area, preaching the gospel, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And who else had he sent into that area? Just recently, his 70 disciples had saturated that area. And so, the pump had been primed, and Jesus goes there, and great fruit. Remember I told you about this before? The only time in the Scripture that it ever said that Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, He was happy, joyful, bubbling over, was because of the fruit that He saw in this area. And here it is. It says, and many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. They believed the words of John. They believed the words of the 70 disciples and they were ready and many believed on him there. Don't you know that that was a refreshing time for the Lord Jesus before he faced the cross, that he was there with people who accepted him and believed him. All right, now we're going to get into our history lesson. So if you would go over to the book of Daniel, chapter 8, and also we'll be looking some at Daniel, chapter 11. The golden age of the Greek empire was brief, very brief. It had begun when Alexander, you've all heard of Alexander the Great, the son of Philip II, who was king of just a little Greek city-state of Macedonia Macedonia. when Alexander's father was a king it was just over a little city state the big power at that time in the world was the Medo-Persian power now in Daniel in three different places in the book of Daniel we learn prophetically about the Gentile powers of the world it would be from the time Daniel wrote Babylon who was in power when Daniel wrote? Because he was in captivity in Daniel in uh, Babylon. So there was Babylon. I pointed the head because he saw an image, and the head represented um, Babylon. Then there was after Babylon there was the Medo-Persian Empire, which was represented by the the breast of the of the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. And then you had um, the bronze um, middle section, which represented the next. Power that came into being Which was Greece And then you had the legs of iron Which represented the next empire Which came into being literally And Now when Daniel wrote this He was involved in the Babylonian empire So he didn't know As a man That the next Gentile empire Was going to be the Medo-Persians and followed by them would be the Greeks. And followed by them would be the Romans. And then after that, the, the ten toes, which are iron and clay mixed, would be a revived Roman Empire in the last days. There's no way Daniel could know that. And yet, you know, he, he wrote it all down three different times. And the next time he wrote it down, he described those four five Roman Empires as beasts. Okay. One was a lion and a leopard and, a, no, a lion and a bear and a leopard and a mixed composite terrible beast for, for Rome that had ten horns that came out of it. Anyway, um, at the time that Philip, Alexander the Great's father, was king, Medo-Persia, the bear, or represented elsewhere as a ram with two horns, medo Persia, Okay, the two empires, two horns. <laughs> they, that was the big empire at the time uh, when Alexander succeeded his father. His father died, and therefore Alexander came to the throne of this little bitty Greek city-state. It was really nothing. But Alexander, who had been taught by Aristotle. Aristotle was his teacher. You've all heard of Aristotle. Brilliant philosopher. Aristotle had taught Alexander how to be a great military commander and how to unify people. And Alexander the Great was probably the greatest military commander that this world has ever known. In only three years, he was able to completely smote the ram with the two horns, the great Medo-Persian empire, and, and smash it to the ground. And that's exactly what you read about in Daniel chapter 8, verse 3, prediction. As I was considering, behold, an he-goat. Now the he-goat there represents Greece. The he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. That speaks of Greece overtaking the world very quickly. Alexander, in just three years, defeated the Medo-Persian. The the, the fact that his feet didn't touch the ground, that speaks of speed. Over in another chapter in Daniel, it describes Greece and Alexander as a leopard, because a leopard is really fast, but the leopard described has wings on it. A leopard is fast, but you put wings on him and he's really fast. So it says that this one, this he-goat, which is Greece, came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now that notable horn, whenever there's a horn in the Old Testament, it speaks of power. The he-goat was Greece. The notable horn was Alexander the Great. All right, and he came to the ram, that's Medo-Persia that had two horns, Medo-Persia, which I had seen standing before the river and ran into him in the fury of his power and I saw him come close unto the ram and he was moved with uh, choler against him anger and smote the ram and brake his two horns and there was no power in the ram to stand before him and he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand therefore the he goat waxed very great that's when was the end of the Medo-Persian Empire and Greece waxed very great and when he was strong the great horn was broken who was that Alexander, after he conquered the whole known world by the time he was 30 years of age, from Europe and Egypt all the way to the border of India. And his men were so tired, they didn't want to go on. And so it says he got really depressed about that because he didn't have a life other than, you know, military. So he thought, what am I going to do? So in a drunken stupor, he choked to death on his own vomit. At the age of 33, Alexander, the great horn of the he-goat was just as Daniel had predicted years, hundreds of years before, he was broken. And in his place, it's like a he-goat, if you can, a unicorn he-goat, okay? In his place arose four horns couldn't have known that but after Alexander was broken and died in his place came his four um, four generals were put in his place over the Grecian Empire and um, and they were Ptolemy well first of all there was Seleucus who was over Syria and East Asia Minor, which would be Turkey. There was another man, General Ptolemy, who was given reign over Egypt. There was another one, Lysimachus, who was over Thrace and Asia Minor, West Asia Minor and a fourth one, Cassander, who was over Macedonia and Greece. That's not important to remember, but four generals arose in the place of the one. Never again were they able to do what Alexander had done. Now, under the teaching of Aristotle, Alexander had understood how important it was to unify all the people who he conquered therefore he was determined to hellenize them hellenization comes from the greek word for the country of greece alexander the great was a greek now if you would go to greece you would find out that the the little greek people over there some of them are tall like me but most of them are little people they don't call greece greece they know that you and I do as Americans, but they call it Elas, and it's spelled H-E-L-L-A-S. Now the H is silent. You Americans, you know, would say Hellas, but it's Elas. So it just, that's what it means, Hellenization. He was going to Greekify everybody he conquered in other words he wanted everybody to speak one language so he wanted everybody to learn how to speak greek nothing wrong with that i mean it's always good to have another language right so there's nothing wrong with that he um he he wanted them to learn greek culture and just to unify them and also of course unfortunately along with that would come the greek religion and that was that was the bad part because the Greek religion, as you know, was just was awful, was full of all kinds of uh, immoral gods and goddesses, and they were, of course, created after the imaginations of men's own lustful minds, so they made their gods and goddesses very wicked immoral you know involved in all kinds of uh uh, fornication and homosexuality and even bestiality and everything else you can think of so then they felt like they had license to act just like their gods if they're the gods and they act that way of course we can get away with it too so anyway um where was i So the four generals, all right. Then from one of those generals, from one of those horns, we are told in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 8 that there would arise a little horn. And we know that this little horn came out of the Seleucid Empire, from General Seleucid and it says he waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Do you know what the pleasant land speaks of? Israel. The, who was this little horn that came out of the Greek empire after it was broken? Antiochus Epiphanes. It was 171 B.C. And this Syrian tyrant... Wore his pride like a garment. He was so egotistical. He was a very wicked, cruel, harsh, savage man. God's word actually refers to him as a vile person. He took the throne to the Seleucid dynasty by flatteries. And you can read about that in Daniel 11, verse 21. He was not the rightful heir to the throne, of the Seleucid dynasty his nephew was but his nephew was a baby and he had the baby murdered and then by flatteries he worked his way to the throne he was a wicked person and who does that remind you of in type if you know anything about the coming Antichrist he too is going to get to power by his, he's going to be a charismatic, uh, eloquent person who can really flatter and, and just speak so well and have everybody swooning by his words. That's what this one did. He loved his power and he was self-deluded enough to think that he was deity in the flesh. Therefore, he called himself Antiochus Theos Epiphanes. Theos. Where does the word theology come from? The Greek word theos, which is the Greek word for God. And theology is the study of God. So in other words, he was calling himself God manifest. God the glory, I mean Antiochus the glorious one. Antiochus the visible God. God. And you see, Israel had dealt with this before. So no wonder when Jesus comes along, they're paranoid. You can understand that. You know, he's claiming to be God in the flesh as well. But behind his back, the people who really knew Antiochus Epiphanes and hated him called him. It was a play on words, but instead of calling him Antiochus Epiphanes, they called him Antiochus Epimenes because it meant Antiochus the madman. And he was a madman indeed. He was one of Satan's great monsters who would be used by the evil one to do his very best to wipe out the people of Israel and their worship of the true God. You see, Antiochus was just a man. He just was an egomaniac and he wanted power he was all about himself he did not realize he was a little chess piece on satan's chessboard and satan was using him to destroy the pe- the jewish people before the messiah could be born you see even though the jewish people didn't calculate, or at least most of them didn't, some of them probably did, but they didn't take Daniel, for example, in chapter 9, Daniel's 70-week prophecy, and calculate it the way they should, so that they would know exactly when their Messiah was due to come, and you can do that with Daniel's 70-week prophecy, you can figure it out to the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey and presented himself to his Israel as her king which we will celebrate next Sunday that's given in Daniel it's amazing the Jews might not have figured that out but you know who did Satan He's no dummy. He's been around a lot. He studied the scriptures better than anybody. And he did his little calculations and he knew he was getting short on time. There was only about 130 years to go and the Messiah would be here. So he he wanted to wipe out the Jewish people so that the Messiah could not come through the line of Abraham, Jacob and Isaac and through the line of the, the tribe of Judah and David. As God had promised. So that's what it really was all about. It was a ploy of Satan. Just as Satan has used Joseph Stalin, another wicked evil man, Adolf Hitler to try to wipe out the Jews. As he used Herod the Great after Jesus was born to try to wipe out all the baby boys there in Bethlehem. And as he is uh, today using this wicked, evil man named Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, he is another wicked, vile person, a dupe of Satan. And we need to be aware of what he is all about. He sees himself as the forerunner of the coming Christ, who is really the Antichrist. You'll hear about it in this documentary next week. He has just said in the recent last month that he is going to very soon wipe Israel off the face of the map with Russia's help, which is exactly what Ezekiel predicts will happen. Russia and Iran will attack Israel to wipe her off the face of the map. And no nation will be there to support her. Sad to say that means us. I hate that. I hate that so much. But it looks like we're not going to be there to help her. But there will be one who will. And man, would I like to see that. And I'd rather see it from the balcony of heaven than down here. But God will intervene and he will destroy. You know, he has promised that he, he, Israel will never be annihilated. She is a, such a miracle. If you don't believe in God, just study the history of Israel. Fantastic. As I told you a couple weeks ago, that they're even back in the land is such a miracle. That the Hebrew language is spoken again is such a miracle. All right, anyway, this is why I went so far over time last week. Well, Wanting to redo what the great Alexander before him had done... Antiochus Epiphanes, who was really Antiochus IV, decided that he too would Hellenize those he conquered. There were just too many different people groups, there were too many different languages going on, there were too many different cultures, and of course there were too many different religions. He would Greekify all of them. But his greatest resistors, particularly when it came to the subject of religion, were who? Who would you think would be his greater, greatest resistors? Right, the Jewish people. This little irritating nation called Israel. Such a thorn in his flesh. Well, at least a good part, we could say, of the resistors came from this nation, although there were those in Israel, particularly those who only really cared about their own economic and social advantages, who thought that it would be advantageous to compromise with the Syrian ruler and his great ideas to Hellenize them. And from these pro-Hellenization Jews, in other words, Jews who went along with Antiochus Epiphanes, okay, we'll learn the Greek language, we'll take on the Greek clothes, Some of them even changed their names to Greek names. Um, But the worst part was that they were willing to compromise when it came to the true God, the worship of the true God. Okay, we'll worship the the gods of of, uh, the the, the Greeks. So these pro-Hellenization Jews, mostly of the aristocracy, because really they're more concerned about their wealth and their position, eventually came from them, eventually came the Jewish sect of the Sadducees that's where they originated no wonder they were so secular i always wondered about those guys you know they didn't believe in anything so why were they even a religious sect they really weren't they'd given up really on the true worship of god years before all they really cared was you know about position and wealth They were more interested in that than in Judaism and in faith in the true God. On the other hand, however, there were Orthodox Jews who strongly opposed Hellenization because it was centered on this pantheon of mythological gods and goddesses who were... Of course, not true gods, and they, they stuck to faith in the one and only true God. And so th- this group of resistors, from them eventually arised the sect of the Pharisees. Hey, guess what? We can finally applaud the Pharisees. <laughs> and again, I can understand now why they're so paranoid with Jesus. You know, because they were the ones who had protected their country earlier, some hundred and sixty years earlier with this Antiochus fellow. So I can understand them better. And then this is one case where I really applaud the Pharisees. But, you know, over the years they had they had gotten more legalistic than truly religious. Not religious, but didn't really have true faith in God anymore. It was all... Um, Rites and rituals and ceremonies At the time of Antiochus's rise to power over the Seleucid Empire The high priest in Israel Now at this, at this time they don't have kings anymore There are no kings in Israel and there's no judges So the one who is over Israel really is the high priest And at this time, when Antiochus was in power, the high priest of Israel was a man named Onias III. And he was vehemently against, he was a good guy, he was against Antiochus and this whole Hellenization thing. Unfortunately, his own flesh and blood brother named Joshua was not. He was all for siding with Antiochus Epiphanes and allowing Israel to become Hellenized. In fact, he even changed his name to Jason, which was a Greek name, is a Greek name. And uh, he and those who were with him in this that said, you know, let's go along with all of this. They signed a pact or like a covenant, a peace treaty, with Antiochus. You can read about that in 1 Maccabees one eleven. Jason offered Antiochus a tremendous bribe if he would let him become the high priest of Israel in the place of his brother Onias. He also offered to build Antiochus a temple to the Greek god Phallus right there in Jerusalem. I'm not going to go any further, but if you, if you P-H-A-L-L-U-S, you can imagine what, what went on in that temple. And he agreed to build a gymnasium. If you make me high priest, I'll not only build you this temple to Phallus, but I'll build a gymnasium right next to the temple. And so Antiochus accepted his offer. They signed a pact, a covenant, with this wicked man, this wicked Gentile ruler. Problem with the gymnasium is that from the temple, you could look down into it because the gymnasium was open and all the athletes performed in the nude, totally in the nude, awful. And a lot of the Jewish men who were athletes, if they were pro-Hellenization, which they were because otherwise they wouldn't be in that gymnasium with all these naked guys running around. They actually, a lot of them had surgeries to hide their circumcision sick anyway so antiochus agreed to this little agreement and is the third murdered and he put jason in his place it was it was terrible never before had an outsider tampered with the divinely instituted office of the high priesthood The Orthodox Jews, as you can imagine, were furious and therefore there was a great division in Israel. Jason and other Jews like him thought they had made a peace treaty with the Gentile king. They probably thought they were doing a good thing even though, of course, it was really for greed and power, but they probably thought they were preventing their people from being killed. But what they had really done is they had made a pact with death. Just as Israel will also do in the near future she will sign a pact a peace agreement with a gentile king and scripture Isaiah 28:15 says that she will make a covenant with death and with hell that's what it says Isaiah 28:15 she'll make an agreement with the antichrist she wants peace i can't blame her she wants peace so bad You think she could read the scripture and be forewarned ahead of time? But like some of the people, some will understand, but the majority will not, and they'll go ahead and sign that peace agreement. And by the way, the the murder of Onias the third, who was the rightful high priest of Israel at that time, was prophesied in Daniel eleven twenty two. Amazing! Do you know why the critics hate the book of Daniel so much? Because it's so accurate. It's one of my favorite books. It's the first book I ever taught 22 years ago when I started this Bible study. (laughs) I love the book of Daniel, but the critics hate it. Because just in the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11, just take one chapter and half of it, there are 135 prophecies that came to pass exactly right on. So of course the critics hate it. they got to get rid of it. It proves too much that the Bible is the Bible, that it's God's inspired word. Anyway, so, um, but that's prophesied. It says the prince of the covenant would be uh, broken off. Now, the, I told you they didn't have judges or kings, so the prince of the covenant was the high priest at that time, and he was indeed cut off. Well, only some three years later, another very greedy Jewish man named Menelaus came into uh, being, and, um, well, he was already into being, but he, he was not even a member of the high priestly lineage you know, he didn't even, at least Jason, when he took his brother's place, both of them were from the tribe of Levi. Well, this Menelaus wasn't even from the right lineage to, to be the high priest. And yet he offered Antiochus an even bigger bribe if he would be allowed to be the high priest in the place of Jason. So what he did to pay off his bribe was he took the money that had been given into the, for the temple offerings. He used the money given for God to pay the bribe to Antiochus Epiphanes, and it wasn't enough money. So he robbed from he robbed from the temple. He took some of the golden vessels out of the temple. Can you imagine? to pay off Antiochus so that he could be the new high priest. And this is predicted in the scripture. It talks in Daniel 11:28 about when Antiochus returned to his own land up in Syria with great riches. Of course he went back with great riches. He had all these Jewish guys paying him all this money so they could sit on the, not the throne, but in the office of the high priesthood. But it says that when he returned to his land with all those great riches, his heart was against the Holy Covenant. That speaks to the fact that all along in his heart, he hated those people. He hated the people of the Holy Covenant, the covenant God had made with them. You know, It's unexplainable by why so many people hate the Jews. It's just it goes beyond reason. But the real reason is is because Satan at work. Satan hates the people of the covenant. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes continued to get bigger visions of conquest, and he determined that he was going to reunify the Grecian Empire. In other words, he was going to resurrect the he goat. Now, unfortunately, he should have read the book of Daniel because he would have found out that the he goat doesn't resurrect from the dead, it gets replaced. But he didn't know anything about scripture. So he was going to make, um, you know, just like it had been under Alexander. Therefore, in 168 BC, and again, this is predicted in Daniel eleven twenty nine. he went to battle against the king of the south, which was Egypt, the Ptolemaic dynasty. And it appeared that he was going to be successful. He went to war with Egypt. He's going to reunify the Grecian Empire. He's having a lot of success until this new coming Gentile power called Rome... Interferes and sends a guy by the name of Gaius Popilius. Now, can you imagine naming your son this Gaius Popilius Linnaeus? From uh, he's that he sent over in uh, ships from the Isle of Cyprus. Now, Cyprus in the Old Testament was called Kittim. Sometimes spelled like it looks like Chittim, but it's Kittim. It's amazing. Go over to Daniel chapter 11. Look at verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south. That's him going down to war with Egypt. But it shall not be as the former. He's not going to have like Alexander's empire for the ships of Kittim. Rome was a power just coming in now, into into place on the world scene, and they had actually conquered all the way to the Isle of Cyprus, which is Kittim. It says, ships from Kittim shall come against him. That's against Antiochus. Therefore, he shall be grieved, and boy was he. Here's what happened. Popilius, a Roman representative, comes with ships from Cyprus to Egypt, He approaches Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, in a big public setting, all Antiochus' soldiers around him, and he draws a circle. This man was brilliant. He drew a circle around the two of them in the sand. And not giving Antiochus any time to think about it, he says by the time he starts walking, by the time I walk out of this circle, Antiochus, you better decide whether you want to engage in war with Rome or not and he knew he didn't want to take on Rome because Rome was becoming a factor. And therefore, in great humiliation, which is a very difficult thing for an egomaniac to do, he had to pull out his troops, even though he had been winning in Egypt, he had to pull out and leave Egypt. And he's mad, he's angry, he's humiliated. And, all right, you're in Egypt if you know a map, and you're going back to where you live in Syria. What country do you have to pass through? You have to pass through Israel. So going through Israel, he's venting his anger and taking it out on the Jewish people who he didn't like anyway, we're told. And he's killing people just for the fun of it. Well, then he gets to Jerusalem and he finds out that Jason had waged a war against Menelaus. Menelaus. You know, the the first high priest he put on the throne was waging a war against, he should have killed Jason, but he didn't, you know, and now they're having a war. And, uh... So once again, his authority is being challenged and he has a way to vent his anger and his frustration. Remember where we read it says he was grieved and go on. Look at verse 30 there in Daniel 11. He shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. He has an agreement. Anyway, it goes on to say he pollutes the sanctuary. Here's what he did. He was so mad that he suddenly gave an order, totally unexpected, to destroy Jerusalem to his soldiers, and they set houses on fire, they tear down the walls of the city, those who resist are killed, thousands died. We have literal descriptions in historical records of atrocities that would make you sick, what they did to people, um, murdered thousands of people. It's all described in 1 um, Maccabees and, and Second Maccabees. The porches of the temple were hacked and smashed to pieces. Where did we see Jesus walking at the time of the Feast of Dedication? On Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch had been hacked to pieces by Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and, you know, I got to thinking about, he's such a picture of the Antichrist, but he kept his man, Menelaus, on the throne. Now, you know in the end days, there's going to be the beast out of the sea, who is the Antichrist. That means he comes, he's a Gentile, just like Antiochus. He makes a peace agreement with Israel. And he has his cohort, cohort, cohort his buddy, <laughs> the, the false prophet, who is a beast out of the land. This is all in Revelation chapter 13. Meaning he comes out of the land, he comes out of Israel. So the false prophet is going to be Jewish, and he's going to be the one who gets all the Jews and the rest of the world to worship the image of the beast. We're going to see in a minute that Antiochus set up an image as well in the holy place. But you see, Menelaus was the false prophet for Antiochus because he was a Jewish guy and he was on the seat of the high priesthood. So it's just all so perfect. Anyway, um, he, destroyed, he destroyed the, the city and uh, then he had the temple. In Israel dedicated to the supreme deity of the Greek pantheon Who knows who the supreme deity of Greek mythology was? Zeus Zeus Olympus And he was worshipped also by the Romans as Jupiter the sun god. And of course from him supposedly came all the other gods. So Antiochus issues the order to build a great big statue of Zeus. Only one little change. I don't want Zeus's face on it. I want my face on it. So, and they had it put right there in the courtyard in the place of the bronze altar so that everybody, all the Jews could see The the face of Antiochus looking out from the statue of Zeus. And then on December 25th, which was the supposed birthday of Zeus, he committed the ultimate abomination of desolation by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And of course, if you know, pigs are unclean, were unclean animals um, for the Jewish people, strictly forbidden by the God, the, the law of God. You do know that um, December 25th, of course, is when we celebrate Christmas, but it wasn't until the 4th century AD that the Roman Catholic Church chose December 25th as the day to celebrate a special mass for the birthday of Christ. A Christ mass. And this was part of their effort to Christianize pagan Roman practices so that more people would be brought into the Roman church. Now, we know that Jesus was not born on December 25th. But after I finish this lesson, I know some of you will have to go, but... There is, you know, it doesn't matter when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It probably was in the spring sometime. December 25th is as good a day as any. And after studying Hanukkah, I think we have an even greater reason to celebrate it on December 25th. So just wait a minute and I'll explain that. All right. But so it was on December 25th that Antiochus offered a pig on the altar. And then he had the blood of the pig taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled everywhere, all, all over the Holy of Holies, desecrated and he had the juices of the pig poured all over the scrolls of the holy scripture awful and then that wasn't enough he had the holy the scrolls torn in pieces and burned It said in Daniel 11 that 1131 that he would pollute the sanctuary of strength. He would take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. If the Jewish people had been paying attention to the prophecies of Daniel, you know what? They could have seen all of this coming. Just as Jesus has warned ahead of time, some 2000 years ahead of time, all the Jewish people of Israel that and Jewish people of the world, that an even worse Antiochus is coming. Even their names are similar, aren't they? Antiochus and Antichrist. In Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, he said that they were going, he told them ahead of time, they're going to make a false agreement with this Gentile ruler, but he is going to do the same thing that Antiochus did After three years, Antiochus turned on Israel and desecrated her temple and killed her people. Same thing's going to happen in the end times. And Jesus warned them about it. He said this, and this is in uh, the Olivet Discourse. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. See, if you don't believe that Daniel was a prophet, that he predicted the future ahead of time, then you don't believe Jesus because Jesus said he was Daniel the prophet. And he tells the Jewish people, "If you, when you see that, and when you, and he says this, whosoever readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And he says, you know, woe unto Jew, any Jewish women who are pregnant with babies, you need to get out of there, flee to Perea, flee to the mountains of Judea. It woe to you if it's a Sabbath day and you won't walk so far. But he warns them ahead of time." All right, anyway, back to Antiochus. After this abomination of desolation in the temple, he issued an edict that forbid the practice of Judaism on pain of death. If babies were circumcised after this edict, or if the Sabbath was observed, or if Jewish dietary laws were kept, or if any of the scrolls of the law were found in a house, then the entire Jewish family was to be put to death. You see, he drew his own line in the sand, didn't he? He said, either assimilate or be annihilated. And he kept his word. It was like, take my mark, so to speak, or you will be put to death. And the nation reeled in horror thousands perished who would not compromise their true faith in god and again as i said daniel predicted all of this years ahead of time he said he would magnify himself in the pleasant land and by him the daily sacrifice would be taken away the place of the sanctuary would be cast down he would cast down the righteous and stamp on them and cast down the truth which is speaking of the scriptures and he did all of that he killed thousands of people um... If, if they go, And they actually sent the Syrian troops into every little town and village and city all throughout Israel to make sure that everybody was obeying. And if they found that a woman had circumcised her little baby boy after the edict was issued, they would tie the baby around the mother's neck and, and cast them off of the wall and, and kill both of them. There are just some horrible things that I read about. One One woman named Hannah... And and these people are mentioned in the Hall of Faith of the Hebrews, Chapter 11, Hall of Faith. By the way, in verse 35, these brave people who would not relent, would not compromise with this wicked person. But she watched seven of her sons be tortured and put to death. They killed each one of them one by one in front of her boiling them to death in a cauldron and she stood there watching this and encouraged them to keep the faith I just can't even begin to imagine and one son this is awful my my daughter said don't say that mom it makes me sick because now she has a little boy but one son they threatened to cut off his tongue and his hands and he said go ahead I will just get them back at the resurrection and they did She encouraged them, and every one of them died, you know, true to their faith, and then they killed her. Awful, awful things that went on. Um, But in one particular—now, what they would do, as I said, they would go—they'd send these detachments of Syrian soldiers into every little town and village throughout all of Israel to make sure everything was being obeyed, and they would set up in every little village an altar to Zeus, and they would have the people— sacrifice a pig on the altar and everybody in that town had to eat of that pig in honor of Antiochus Epiphanes, basically worshiping him. Well, they got to this one little town called Modin, M-O-D-I-N, 17 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And the soldiers, the Syrian soldiers, did their usual Zeus altar thing and gathered all the townspeople around the altar. And then they picked out in the crowd one old priest. and and his name was Mattathias. And they said, you come forward and you kill the pig. You sacrifice the pig on the altar. And the man immediately said, never. But before they could do anything to that old guy, another priest, an apostate priest, stepped forward and he said, "Don't, don't worry about him, I'll do it. So he volunteered to kill the pig. All the townspeople knew that once he killed the pig and the pig was offered as a sacrifice, every one of them would be made to eat the pig meat or die or be sold into slavery. So the apostate priest goes forward to kill to kill the pig, but Mattathias can't stand it. And he rushes forward, grabs the sword from the Syrian officer and kills the Syrian officer, turns and thrusts the sword, Through the apostate priest. And then his five sons take up their father's cause and they rush forward and kill every one of the detachment, the Syrian soldiers. Now, there weren't, you know, there wouldn't be many of them compared to the townspeople, but they killed them. And then Mattathias and his five sons did just what Jesus tells the Jews in the end times to do they fled to the hills of Judea. Now word got quickly throughout all of Israel about what these brave men had done. And so pretty soon more men from other villages begin to join them until they have a pretty good group of guys. And they begin to have guerrilla warfare on the Syrians. You know, they'll come down, they'll hide in caves and dens and up in the mountains, and then they'll slip down when they see a Syrian detachment, and they kill them. And then they go back up. Well, during this time, and by the way, Judah, well, Mattathias was an old man. He died in about a year. And on his deathbed, he gave... um, the authority to be the ruler over this rebellious little guerrilla group to his son Judah and Judah turned out to be a great military leader so great in fact that he became known as the Maccabee, which is the Hebrew word um, we pronounce it Maccabee the Hebrew word for hammer so he became known as Judah the hammer because he just was hammering away at the enemy. So all of his followers became known as the hammers, the Maccabees. And thus we have the revolt of the Maccabees, which took place in about you know, 168, 169, 170 B.C., all right, now the Maccabees continue to, to, to revolt, but in response to this revolt, the Syrians under Antiochus killed tens of thousands of Jewish people. So it was a terrible time. But what happened in that time was that there was a great spiritual revival in Israel. Because, see, you know, you it divided the true from the false. Either you compromised with the Syrians or you didn't. And the ones who didn't grew strong in their faith, even though many of them had to die. You see, during the time of the tribulation, it's going to be a time of purging in Israel. Many, many Jewish people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. But a lot of them will lose their lives, won't they? It says two-thirds of the Jews in Israel will lose their lives. But you see, Antiochus meant it for bad, but God really used it for good. Well, finally, Judas, Judah the Maccabee met the enemy on an open battlefield. And even though the enemy forces were 13 times bigger than his force now think of the end times again if you know the book of Revelation in the end times there's going to be an army at least 13 times the size of Israel that meets on an open battlefield in the valley of Megiddo, the battle of Armageddon to finally do away with Israel and annihilate her so so Judah the Maccabee meets with the forces of Antiochus on this open battlefield, they're 13 times his size but amazingly miraculously he defeats them who do you think was helping out judah the hammer god so finally he says to his men it's time to go to jerusalem so they march to jerusalem and when they got to jerusalem do you know what they saw first thing they saw the walls had been torn down the place was a shambles weeds were growing up to the waist everywhere But the worst thing I think they saw is when they went to the temple and saw Zeus with the face of Antiochus looking at them. And they were just overwhelmed. The holy curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies had been torn down and put in shreds. The scrolls were gone. It was was horrible and it just wretched ret- their hearts out from them. It says they, they, they fell on the ground, they tore open their clothes in grief, they, they poured dust on their heads. And I thought about what it's going to be like after Jesus Christ, who is from the line of the tribe of Judah, and he is going to come down like a hammer just with the word of his power at the battle of Armageddon. He is the He is the fulfillment of Judah, the hammer. Judah the Maccabee, Jesus, <laughs> the tribe of Judah, the hammer. But after he defeats all Israel's enemies and goes to Jerusalem, what do you think he's going to see? First thing he's going to see is Jerusalem in a shambles and the temple desecrated by the image of the Antichrist being set up right there in the Holy of Holies. that same thing. Same thing all over again. Just, you know... But man, just like Judas of Maccabee, after he got over his grief and his, and his sorrow, he said, we're going to cleanse that temple. And you know what Jesus is going to do? You think he cleansed it before, or twice in his ministry? Man, he is going to get there, and he is really going to cleanse that temple and dedicate it to God Almighty, and he's going to sit on the throne, and it's going to be glorious. Glorious. Absolutely glorious. Oh. So, um, so they got in there, and they cleansed the temple. They made all the, um, the the furniture over again, you know, the menorah and the, the altar and everything that they needed to do. They put up a new holy curtain right away between the holy and the holy place. Of course, I guess the first thing they would have done was smash to pieces that image of Zeus with Antiochus' face on it. And then um, after they finished cleansing the temple, they had an eight-day celebration to celebrate the cleansing and the rededicating of the temple to the true God. And that, ladies, is why. And by the way, when they began that celebration, they purposely began it on the 25th of December. It was three years to the day that Antiochus had desecrated, that they had their celebration of the rededication of the temple. And that is why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. It is the feast of dedication of the temple. And I think that you and I have an even greater reason to celebrate the feast of dedication, Hanukkah, at the same time we celebrate the incarnation of God, because without the Maccabean revolt, the Jewish people would have been annihilated or assimilated and if they had been, Jesus, our Messiah, the t- true temple of God, would never have been born. So we have a lot of reason to celebrate at Christmas time. Double reason to celebrate at Christmas time. And I'm going to close with this. Do you know what the Jewish people sing at the time of Hanukkah? They have a great celebration, it's a, it's a wonderful feast. But one of the songs they sing, is called Rock of Ages. Amazing. <laughs> Mao, Mao's tour it's called But here's the words of this song Rock of ages let our song Praise your saving power You amidst the raging throng Were our sheltering tower Furious they assailed us But your help availed us And your word broke their sword When our own strength failed us isn't that amazing? It's such a picture of Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, whose word will hammer their enemy when they their own strength has totally failed them. Well, we live in exciting times because everything that we have studied in history past is about to become history future, except the Antichrist is going to be like, let's take uh, Antiochus, Herod the Great, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and put them all together in one person. Because this man, the Antichrist, is going to be possessed by Satan. The others were just tools of Satan. He will be possessed by Satan. We need to pray for Jewish people. We need to pray for Israel and pray for our country to have the wisdom, to wake up, and no matter what else we do, that we would always support Israel. I don't think we do, though, because it's not in the Scripture. All right, please remember to invite all your friends next week. Let's fill this place out. You can bring men, children, not real little children. But teenage children, and um, you will you will be amazed at this film. All right, let's pray, Th- Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the attention of your people and their hunger. I pray that they have been filled and satisfied even even with a history lesson because when we look at history, we do see indeed that it is your story, Lord. And we do get excited about your word. Thank you that your word is your word, that you did know the end from the beginning, and that you have revealed it to us. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, that this lesson draws us closer to you and helps us to put our priorities in right, uh, right and to, to truly understand that this life is not what's important. It's the next life, and it's helping other people to know the truth before it's too late for them. Thank you for the eternal security of the believer that you have given to us in John chapter 10, and thank you that Jesus truly is God manifest. We love you, and we pray in your name. Amen.